Well, ladies, I'm not letting you off the hook. I was just talking about the men's side there. I've come for you and I'll come for you at times as well. And it's the same. Ladies, the church may enter into church discipline upon you if you are refusing to live with your husband properly and you are engaging in sin against him in any, in any way at all, whether it's pornography or some other way also. So you're not off the hook. It's just the issue of pornography tends to strike men in a more direct way. So men, show up at the breakfast. Start engaging with other men about how to deal with this and then enter into one-on-one discipleships with them to help them be set free from this as you are being set free from it as well. Don't abandon... Welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. In in this issue. So, this exception clause essentially means this. An unbeliever who does not want to live with the believer will wreak havoc in the marriage and so should be allowed to leave. The primary reason to stay in the marriage that the unbeliever might be one to Christ does not override the harmful nature of trying to live with an unwilling unbeliever. And although I won't, don't have time to flesh this out, I would say that there are certain cases when it may be, and here, in, because in this context, you have the unbeliever initiating the leaving. I'm not willing to stay and they're leaving. Let them go are the words. But I would say there are certain cases when it may be acceptable for the believer to initiate the divorce when the unbeliever, that is in the believer-unbeliever situation, there are some times when the believer could initiate that divorce when the unbeliever refuses to leave or refuses to divorce but pursues behavior that is destroying the marriage. And this happens. And you know, what I've seen happen in the place where I, I feel like this is probably most appropriate, where I would, we would say as a church and we would say as elders that it's acceptable for the, un, for the believing partner, believing spouse to say, no, I'm going to release you in divorce to the unbeliever, is when the unbeliever starts to claim things like this. You see, I know the scripture. I've heard this said by men. I know the scripture. You can never divorce me, and I'm going to make your life miserable. Now, see, he's taking the scripture He's twisting it to his own advantage. I'm going to use you. I like having you. I like what you provide for me, but I'm not willing to live in a marriage per se. I'm I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to wreak havoc upon you and do what I want, and you can't do anything about it. Well, then that woman appeals to the church, and the church has something to say. Men don't try that. Women don't try that. It's not going to fly because there are there's a lot involved here, and the church will be brought to bear. And you may not use that as some kind of hiding protection. Well, she can never initiate or he can never initiate. I believe this passage gives the grounds for that to be the case because that person is not agreeing to a marriage at all. They're agreeing to what they want to have from that woman or from that man, not marriage. Now, again, I would say that's a case that's not decided in a day. Most of, we, we, We've seen this happen twice. And the cases when we've dealt with it has been six years 
as we worked through whether or not it was acceptable for the wife in, in the case where we had to finally say it's acceptable for you to initiate divorce against your husband. Six years. So don't think we run into this and say, well, anything that goes on, yeah, that, that husband or that wife's out of there. You guys, we're very careful here. But we as a church have, have a responsibility to protect a family, to protect a wife, to protect a husband in these cases. Grace Community Church distinctive again. The second reason for permitting a divorce, as in cases where an unbelieving mate does not desire to live with his or her believing spouse, because God has called us to peace, divorce is allowed and may be preferable in such situations. This is one case where divorce may, may be preferable. And although, again, it is, and it's as close to commanded as possible here. Let him go. So this, it, this one is very strong. When an unbeliever desires to leave, trying to keep him or her in the marriage may only create greater tension and conflict. Also, if the unbeliever leaves the mar- believes the marital relationship permanently, but is not willing to file for divorce, perhaps because of lifestyle, irresponsibility, or to avoid monetary obligations, which we've also seen, then the believer is in an impossible situation of having legal and moral obligations that he or she cannot fulfill. Because the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases and is therefore no longer obligated to remain married, the believer may file for divorce without fearing the displeasure of God. That's essentially what I've just described. Divorce and re- So we would say those are, these are the two exceptions. And again, these do not undo the weightiness of marriage. I believe, in fact, they actually reinforce it. The idea that marriage is to be a covenant that is before the Lord and that those obligations are to be fulfilled means that if someone is committing adultery and destroying the covenant, then that is the ground for which that it may, the only grounds for which it may be dissolved, except for the ground where there is an unbeliever who is, who is fundamentally at odds with the believer because they do not worship the same God. So far from un, unweaving or, or, or loosening God's love of marriage, I think these exception clauses actually indicate the, the reality of God's love for marriage and what marriage actually means. Now, implied here, number three on your outline, is that divorce and remarriage are to be carefully overseen by the church. These are not things that you enter into without bringing the church to bear. And this is often the real problem. We have men and women having in difficult marriages estranged from the church, making all kinds of really bad decisions about when to get divorced and, 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 and how to do those sorts of things. And they do that on the basis of psychological counsel and counsel from their buddies and counsel from radio and internet preachers who know nothing rather than bringing these situations to the elders and shepherds and leaders of the church, bringing themselves underneath accountability, not only so that they might do what is right, but also so they won't be harmed. And so this is, I think the larger problem is that the church has abandoned its responsibility to help oversee these things. And the people of the church have abandoned their responsibility to come underneath the leadership to work through them. And then all kinds of problems happen. And of course, all of this is exacerbated by the fact that there are so many unbiblical churches. They don't hold the church discipline. They're not going to hold accountability for someone who is violating a marriage. They're going to go on doing what they want. It puts the spouses in these untenable situations that they have no idea what to do. And so in desperation, they react. So I would place this largely at the foot of the church and church leadership. Yes, the individuals, you are responsible as well. But I think the church has failed miserably in this. And and church leadership has failed miserably as well. So several thoughts here that just, it's a huge issue and and the importance of having a biblical church, which can oversee such situations with an absolute commitment to scripture is essential. 
The weight of the church must be brought to bear in order to protect the sanctity of marriage as well as to guard those who are being sinned against in marriage and really to guard all those around who are being devastated by this. And so just a couple of thoughts here. I don't think they're on your outline. You can write them in if you have some space. Is that church discipline is to be brought to bear on those who are sinning in a marriage. So if you've got someone who's, who's entering into adultery in the midst of a marriage, that needs to be exposed to, there needs to be the individual, Matthew 18, done, where an individual goes and says, look, you're sinning, you need to stop. If that's rejected, then it needs to go to two or three, then it needs to go to the church, and then if they refuse to respond, they need to be put out of the church. And if there's not church discipline brought to bear, then how will these situations ever be resolved? And how will the spouse be protected? And how will she or he know when it is time to set the marriage aside or when it's biblically right? If there is no church discipline, then all of this falls to the ground. If there's no accountability, ultimately, in in declaring someone who would continue on in sin and the sin against their spouse, some kind of sexual sin, really, or other kinds of sins, if they would do this and have no accountability and always be considered a believer, then there's never going to be biblical grounds, or very rarely. So again, Grace Community Church distinctives. If a professing Christian violates the marriage covenant and refuses to repent during the process of church discipline, Scripture instructs that he or she should be put out of the church and treated as what? An unbeliever. When the discipline results in such a reclassification of the disobedient spouse as an outcast or unbeliever, the faithful partner would be free to divorce according to the provisions for divorce, as in the case of an unbeliever departing, as it's stated in 1 Corinthians 7.15. Before such a divorce, however, reasonable time should be allowed for the possibility of the unfaithful spouse returning because of the discipline. So you see what happens. You have this guy who claims to be a believer or this gal who claims to be a believer. It does work both ways. They are sinning against the, 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 their, their spouse. They're, they're brought to accountability by the church. They refuse to respond. They're put out of the church and declared what? An unbeliever. If they don't respond, then they're in the 1 Corinthians 7 category. You've got an unbeliever unwilling to, to fulfill the duties of marriage. And there you have a clear case where we can then help the spouse to understand when is the the time to dissolve that marriage. Now, again, as I said, the times that we've done it, it's taken us about six years to get through it. It doesn't always take that long. But the church has to be brought to bear. Additionally, the church council is to be brought to bear for those who have been previously divorced. The leadership of the local church must help single believers who have been divorced to understand their situation biblically and to help those who have been divorced and remarried to understand their situation biblically, especially in cases where the appropriate application of biblical teaching does not seem clear. For example, the church leadership may at times need to decide whether one or both of the former partners could be legitimately considered believers at the time of their past divorce, because this will affect the application of biblical principles to their current situation. Also, because people often transfer to or from other churches, and many of those churches do not practice church discipline, it might be necessary for the leadership to decide whether a member's estranged or former spouse should currently be considered a Christian or treated as an unbeliever because of continual disobedience. Again, in some cases, this would affect the application of the biblical principles. You see how difficult this becomes. But you see that even in understanding the exceptions and in taking Scripture at what it says, that it is the church's responsibility to wrestle through these things. We don't simply dismiss it by this. No, no divorce, no remarriage. Sorry. We don't even have to worry about this. We don't have to consider your situation. It's all done. No, we're going to work through properly the exceptions so that we might help you understand whether or not you're going to please God in that next decision that you make. And the church wrestles and struggles and weeps over these decisions. They are difficult decisions to make. But we make them because Scripture commands us to make them. And we want to please and honor God in marriage. 
Another issue to consider here, number four, is pre-conversion divorce and remarriage. What is to be done when a couple has been involved in divorce and or remarriage before becoming a believer? Now, there's much discussion here, but again, I'm going to just try to simplify it again by reading from that distinctive that I've been reading from, which I think says it excellently. According to 1 Corinthians 7, 20 to 27, there is nothing in salvation that demands a particular social or marital status. The Apostle Paul therefore instructs believers to recognize that God providentially allows the circumstances they find themselves in when they come to Christ. If they were called while married, then they are not required to seek a divorce, even though divorce may be permitted on biblical grounds. If they're called while divorced and cannot be reconciled to their former spouse because that spouse is an unbeliever or is remarried, then they are free to either remain single or be remarried to another believer. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. And so... The, the concept of, well, what I, what I did before I was an unbeliever, that somehow that is, going, that is going to bind me in this area of divorce and remarriage, I think is dealt with by the Apostle Paul, dealt with in Scripture to say, at, at this point now, God, the, 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 the sins that you were involved in before marriage have been forgiven, and you are wrestling through, then how is it that, that I respond to properly and biblically deal with my current situation now? Then lastly, Number five, repentance and forgiveness of believers who have been involved in an unbiblical divorce or remarriage. This is also essential. There needs to be repentance and forgiveness of believers who have been involved in an unbiblical divorce and or remarriage. Because the question comes, if I was a believer and I got divorced on unbiblical grounds and then I remarried and now I'm in the church, am I in ongoing adultery? Is there any way to get out of this? Is there, do I have to divorce? Do I, what do I do? And the issue is that there needs to be repentance and when there is repentance, the sin is forgiven and the adultery is not ongoing. In the cases where a believer obtained a divorce on unbiblical grounds and remarried, he or she is guilty of the sin of adultery until that sin is confessed. There's the issue. You've not recognized that you are, are sinning. You've not confessed that sin of adultery that you were in because you divorced improperly and therefore you are in adultery when you remarried. But God does forgive that sin immediately when repentance takes place. And there's nothing in Scripture to indicate anything other than this. From that point on, the believer should continue in his or her current marriage. Otherwise, you would, we would have to counsel divorce. You are in an ongoing, adulterative situation. You've got to get out of that right now. But Scripture says exactly the opposite. That when there's been a remarriage, you don't dissolve that remarriage on the basis of what happened previously. But there must be repentance. Now, I would just like to summarize all of this by giving the four views on divorce and remarriage. So I'm just going to step you through what the four views are. I've presented you one of the views. I'm not going to interact with each of them because I feel like I've given a strong biblical case for the one that I've presented. But you need to know that there are others, and you probably do, and some of you probably fall within them. This is a place where good and godly men differ, but I've given you the official stand of the church so that you might be able to know and understand how the church teaches on these issues. But here are the other views on divorce and remarriage. The first one is no divorce and no remarriage. There's never any biblical exception. There may never be a divorce that is sanctioned by God, and therefore there may be no remarriage that is ever sanctioned by God as well. Now, now let me say that there are some, there are some biblical principles, there, there's biblical things that could point in that direction. I'm not saying that's a ridiculous position. It isn't. Right? So you have to work through these issues. I'm saying that because of a careful study of Scripture and what Jesus says in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, I can't hold that. I'm not saying the people who hold it are unbiblical or that they're somehow overly harsh. These are just mean, nasty people who don't want anyone to ever get divorced or remarried. No, they're trying to hold the Scripture generally. And in fact, that's where I come from. That's my background. 
And I held that until I was, until I was about 10 years into ministry, no divorce and no remarriage. However, we've already seen that God himself uses the language of divorce, as difficult as that is for us to say, he uses that language in Jeremiah chapter 3. Then you have Jesus using the same language of an exception in, for adultery in Matthew chapter 5 and Matthew chapter 19. And then in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you clearly have, I think most clearly, you have a place where God is pleased to say, this marriage should end between a believer and an unbeliever. So I think it's an untenable position to say there can be no divorce. And, and the reason they say there can be no remarriage is because there can be no divorce. So that would fall as well. If there can be some divorce... Generally, I would say there can be some remarriage, although that's the next position. So the first one is, look, no divorce, no remarriage under any circumstances ever. And if you ever did this at any time in your life, if you were ever divorced, you may never be remarried at any time for any reason, any place, anywhere. Strong. If scripture says it, we have to do it, but I don't believe that scripture says it. Next is that there is no divorce or yes, divorce for adultery and abandonment, but no remarriage. And again, without getting into all of the issues here, essentially they would say the, they would acknowledge the exception clauses, but that the exception clause, when Jesus says, except for the case of sexual immorality, that that applies only to divorce. That is, there are some times when divorce is acceptable, and that would be sexual immorality, but that does not allow for a remarriage. God still would view a remarriage as adultery. And again, without, well, I guess, talking uh, overburdening the point, I think the idea of remarriage in Matthew chapter 19 was made very clear. When the man divorces, except for unchastity, and then he remarries, he commits adultery. And only then. So I I don't think it's tenable to say if if the exception clause applies to the divorce, that it doesn't apply to the remarriage, because in both cases, remarriage is what is really at issue. That's when the adultery happens. So I would say that yes for divorce, Yes, divorce for adultery and abandonment and no for remarriage isn't, isn't biblically tenable as well. Again, it's a position that is argued for scripturally, and so it's something to work through, but I don't think it holds according to the things we've discussed. There's a third position, and this really is the position of most of the church. Yes, divorce for multiple reasons, and yes, remarriage in every case where there is an acceptable divorce. Now, again, even here, I want to be careful. There are some churches and some people who would are, are like the Pharisees. Look, what is divorce for any reason? It doesn't matter. Many churches are not that way in that they feel constrained by the grace of God to say, look, how can we say when there's these difficult situations, there's this harm going on, how can we say that we can't allow them to divorce? How, how can Jesus want them to stay in their marriages? And <clears throat> if he allows them to divorce, how can we say they can't get remarried? It is the grace of God is appealed to. <clears throat> However, I would say, we may not appeal to the grace of God apart from the truth of Scripture. We can't. God's grace flows through, is, is, it funnels, is funneled through the truth, grace and truth together. So while we may desire to show grace in very difficult situations that do not involve the proper biblical exceptions, it would not truly be grace to do so. And God will extend his grace to those in those situations, either to not divorce or to not remarry if that, if that is what is necessary. So I can't, we can't say, it's, I think it's biblically untenable to say yes, divorce for reasons other than the exceptions and that you can remarry when that is the case. So what we hold to is, as a church, as elders, what we hold to is number four, yes, divorce for adultery, and we've just simplified it to abandonment, and that would be the leaving or the refusal to live in peace of a believer, of an unbeliever with a believer. So yes, for divorce and, or abandonment, and yes, remarriage under both exceptions. 
So God allows divorce for the innocent party when there's been adultery or abandonment. And God therefore allows remarriage for the innocent party when the innocent party uh, divorced or was divorced according to the biblical exceptions. And that's all for all the reasons that I just mentioned before. So that number four would be the one that we hold. Now, what's the solution? Okay, we're wrestling through, wow, all right, we, we see these things biblically, we see them scripturally. How is it that we can deal with these things at a fundamental level? And here's what I want to leave you with. By, your, by way of application, what are you going to do with all this information? Thanks, Chris, for the data dump on divorce and remarriage. Now, I think it's important. Scripture, Jesus clearly speaks to it. We have to know what it means because it impacts so many people. However, what are we going to do? Here's what we're going to do. One, the church must support and encourage biblical marriage at every place, in every way, at every level. We have to teach what marriage really is and how you enter into marriage biblically and, and how you uphold biblical principles. We get to say, we're going to deal with divorce and remarriage and try to, try to put out fires all over the place. We have to, we have to uncover the source of the fire, which is a misunderstanding of marriage. It's entering into marriages improperly. All of the things that go with not being scriptural from the beginning. So we must help our young people enter into marriage with the most solid foundation and biblical process possible. And we must model strong, deep biblical marriages. The church has to be concerned about this issue. And as I said, in our, our youth ministry, we seek to, to work to this end in, in all ways. And I keep moving back the date of our starting of biblical manhood and womanhood. I have to move it back again. It's going to be two more weeks. I'll send you something out so you know when it's coming. But we do this once every two or three years to, to deal in depth with these issues with our youth. And we're asking parents to at least one of you come if at all possible. And I hate even to add if at all possible. You need to come to hear what your kids are hearing. Youth ministry is not babysitting ministry. You're not dropping your kids off and we just kind of inculcate them with certain things. I know you can't and don't need to come every Wednesday night. You need to come for these sessions, at least one of you, because we're telling your children things that you need to be sure that you agree with, first of all, and that you know that they are hearing so that you can know how to interact with them about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman. And we, we, are, we firmly believe that in nearly 100% of the cases, we are simply helping to instill in them the very things you want. It's not like I want you to be there because I think we're going to say lots of crazy things that you don't agree with because they're biblical, what we're saying. Three weeks, you need to come. Now, we don't just do it in youth ministry. We do it everywhere at every level with our college ministry, with our children's ministry, every form of adult ministry. Because the church must support and encourage biblical marriage. Second, the church must protect and strengthen existing biblical marriages. We must do everything possible to provide encouragement and instruction for those who are married. You need to stay married. But not just stay married, you need to stay married in such a way that other people look and say, that's beautiful. It certainly doesn't help our young people when they look at your marriages and say, man, they stayed together, but that was, that was horrid. I mean, that was just a mess. I wish they, I wish they hadn't stayed together. That, that is not accomplishing any good for anyone, certainly not society, and certainly not helping the cause of biblical marriage. Your marriage needs to be a beautiful one. It isn't? Then you need to fix it. And how do you fix it? First of all, you get on your knees and you say, God, in any way where I am the problem, I repent. And I'm going to go do everything I can to see and to work so that my marriage pictures Christ in the church, so that my children are drawn to the beauty of marriage. And if that's not the case for you, I tell you, you don't have a choice. You must fix it. 
And again, by saying, you must fix it, I understand what I'm saying is the Spirit of God and the Word of God through the help of the church are what is required to do that. But you don't have an option. A bad marriage is not an option for a believer, for two believers. It is time to work on it if you have not. And I'm not saying that everyone needs to run in to get some official counseling. Some of you do. But I'm saying that all of you need to hone your marriage skills. And you need, why do you think we're doing this discipleship stuff? You know, you got the men meeting together. They're going to do this finally free book. It's on what? It's on pornography. Pornography destroys marriages. Men, you got to stop looking at pornography because it's harming your marriage at the most intimate level. But then when you do that, you need to disciple other men and help them out of that because so many are caught in it. This is not all about you. It's not all about your busyness. Well, I'm too busy. I got to go to work. I can't get free from pornography. You had best because if you don't, the church is coming for you. Church discipline is what happens when you stay involved in pornography. I couldn't say this any more strongly. You don't have a choice because God loves marriage. Do you see how this fits together? And I say, I, I, I say that as strongly as I can because unfortunately, some of you still don't hear me. Now, ladies, I'm not letting you off the hook. I was just talking about the men's side there. I've come for you, and I'll come for you at times as well. And it's the same. Ladies, the church may enter into church discipline upon you if you are refusing to live with your husband properly, and you are engaging in sin against him in any, in any way at all, whether it's pornography or some other way also. So you're not off the hook. It's just the issue of pornography tends to strike men in a more direct way. So men, show up at the breakfast. Start engaging with other men about how to deal with this and then enter into one-on-one discipleships with them to help them be set free from this as you are being set free from it as well. Don't abandon others in your selfishness because you are then harming the children of this church, you're harming the other marriages of this church, and you are harming the society as a whole as they, as they look at you involved in your pornography and harming the marriages. Okay, I better move on. We must do everything possible to provide. Uh, this is the church protecting and strengthening biblical marriages. Still underneath this, we must work tirelessly to help marriages that are struggling to be recovered. I've mentioned that. Now hear me. If you are believers, then there is no, there is no reason on this earth that your marriage cannot and must not be recovered. If you are two believers, you have the power, you have the strength, you have the principles. Again, you have no excuse. My spouse is just too hard. If you both are actually believers then you can work through it. If you are not, then the only way that's going to be determined is church discipline. Ultimately, that's the way it's going to end. So you need to, you need to work on it. You need to work through those issues. And if they aren't worked on, then it needs to come to the church. That's how serious this is when it comes to marriages being strong and true. So if you can't work through it, then it's going to become an area of church discipline. And then it's going to see if there's believer or unbeliever. Believers, two of them can always solve their marriage problems. 100% of the time because they have the Spirit of God, and you need to solve them. We must be willing to bring the weight of church discipline to bear on those who are sinning against their spouses. And by remember, guys, that starts with one-on-one, where you see a marriage that is struggling, and you talk to a man or a woman who is sinning against their spouse, and you individually say, you need to stop. I would say we would solve a lot of marriage problems at that level if people would do that and others would listen if you had these one-on-one discipleship relationships where you knew enough about the family that was living next to you or that sits next to you in church every day and you knew enough to say, you're in sin and you need to stop and I love you enough to help you with that. Let's work on it. And it's not going to come to the church leadership. So we're going to come to church discipline. You're going to solve your marriages and I'm never even going to know. And wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Because you are capable of that. 
vast majority where ultimately any believer is capable of confronting in sin and then helping people work through it. And then lastly, the church must provide truth and grace to those who have been divorced and remarried. They must provide truth and grace. We must help those who have been divorced to work through the, the spiritual issues involved and understand their situation biblically. We must not treat divorce as the unpardonable sin. And we must not treat those who are divorced and remarried as somehow second-class citizens. Well, you know, God forgives you, but you're a little bit less than me. And we've not been divorced and remarried, and so our marriage is one step above yours. This is, this is gross that, that we would say or think these kinds of things. God is good and gracious and kind, and his forgiveness is total. And we pursue then everything that God gives to us in the midst of these things. I pray that we as a church, in understanding these things, will have stronger, more solid, more godly, more joyful marriages, and we will have both the marriages that exist now and those entering into marriage, and that we will set a legacy for this area, for the lives of every one of our children, of marriages that please and honor God. We have no less a command in Scripture than that. And we need to rise to that occasion as a church. It's time. And so I pray that these messages will help us move in that direction. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your clear teaching that you provide for us in your word. I thank you that you have created marriage as a way for a man and a woman to interact in ways that please and honor you and and to accomplish the work that you've given them to do in this world. Thank you for that precious gift. Thank you also that you have given us clear teaching on how we work through the wrestles and struggles and sins that come in married life. And I pray that you would help each one in this congregation to work through these issues in a manner that pleases you, that they would be setting aside their sin and pursuing righteousness. And that our congregation would set an example, would set a tone of what it means to have strong, deep, beautiful, loving, God-honoring marriages. Father, help us do this. We cry out to you. Lord, I pray for our young people that all whom you have called to be married, that they would enter into their marriage relationships pure and holy, that they would enter into them with solid biblical truth in place, that they might be able to, to, from the very beginning, set an example of marriages that please and honor you. Father, I pray for marriages on the brink this morning. If if there's an unbeliever involved in that marriage, that they're, they're, even even the, the love for the spouse that they have, the human love, would drive them to recognize their sin and to come to you that they might honor you in the way they treat their spouse. And for two believers, I pray that they would humble themselves. Wherever there are two believers, that they would humble themselves and that they would work through their marriage issues, that you might be honored in our church. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, 
but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.